You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Because nope. I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th, hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Coming to you from Classic City, the capital of the Bulldog Nation, it's time for another edition of the podcast designed for the most die-hard Georgia fans in the country. Here are your hosts, Tyler and Charlie. What's up, guys? Welcome back to another edition of the Glory UGA Podcast. I'm your host, Tyler, and joining me today... For our post-Orange Bowl mailbag episode is my co-host, Charlie. Charlie, you're here, so that means you survived Miami. Was it as bad as you had convinced yourself it was going to be? It was better than I thought it was going to be. Oh, wow. But it still is not Who would have thought? a trip I would like to take. So if we ever made the Orange Bowl again, outside of the fact that it's probably a good thing for us to be in that game because we've had a good season, you would not be excited about it. Correct. I probably would not go again. But you wouldn't go if we were in the Orange Bowl again? It was expensive. Yeah, and I mean, not yeah. That's not my scene, so it's not something I Well, you like didn't stay in, like, South Beach, like Miami, Miami. Right, but I still don't want to spend thousands of dollars on something that I don't... But you enjoy the game. Prefer, right, but... But everything outside of that, was it worth it? No. Mmm. Well, the thing is, especially, because you're going to the Natty, right? You're going to Indy. Yes. So, for fans, it really is almost prohibitively expensive for your average fan to go to the SEC Championship game, then go to Miami, then go to Indianapolis. So, when you kind of add all that up, it's like, oh my God, how much money am I spending right now? But yeah, Exactly. And But if we win, it's okay. It's worth it. Uh, if you don't, eh. Oh no, if you win, Charlie, it's worth it. I don't think it. I'll do that in the future. And I'm not happy that the Wait, National... wait, wait. You won't go to playoff games in the future? Probably not. No, Charlie. Come on. Uh, yeah. I'm just... I don't like playoff traveling games? that time of the year. Playoff the game final, or just the final, but you won't go to the playoff game even if it's like in a if it was in New Orleans would you go if it was a Sugar Bowl maybe oh come on I just don't like to travel at that time of year. This I mean, time fair, of year. fair. I understand that. I get that. Cause I feel there's... really bad for people who are flying to Indianapolis because their flights might get canceled. Oh, let's just let's put positive vibes out there, Charlie. Let's hope that doesn't happen for them. I mean, it could... so you're driving? Yes, I am too. It could be bad. I am driving. I am driving. It could be bad driving too. Roads get icy. This is true. Honestly, why is... Why are we doing it why in Indianapolis? Is this, like, if you want to do East Coast, West Coast, and, like, you know, spread the love a little bit, I get that. It does not need to be played in a northern location. It just simply does not. It makes no sense whatsoever. But isn't the NCAA headquarters there? Yeah, it's in Indianapolis, which I, I'm... like. The, the, so, is, is there, like, a plan to have it there every few years? I mean, 
but that's what they do for the NCAA basketball term. Like once every four years, it's, it's always in Indianapolis. But the NCAA has actually nothing to do with the college football playoff. And Power Five basically broke off and said, "Hey, we're going to create this thing." Right, and it's just a horrible idea to have something in January in Indianapolis. I mean, come on. It's like when they do the Super Bowl in places like that. But it, it I mean, I guess they like for the Super Bowl, I get it to some degree because they build new stadiums. They want to reward these teams that do that. But that's not the case here. I mean, Lucas Oil's been there forever. But whatever, we're in the national cha- in the national championship game, so I don't want to complain too much. I will say, Charlie, I'm kind of I like experiencing new things and seeing new places. I've never been to Indiana, period. Certainly never been to Indianapolis. So You've been I'm- to Indiana. Oh shoot, I have. South Bend is in Indiana. So yes, I have been to Indiana. I take that back. I have been to Indiana that one time. Right, but do you want to go to Indianapolis in January, or would you prefer to go in? I don't know, May, June. Yeah, I mean, I I would rather go when it's not January in a, in a state like that. I'd much rather this game be in like New Orleans, as I mentioned, something like that. Tampa, even. I mean, whatever. But it is what it is, Charlie. We're in the natty. Let's just embrace this. It's going to be fantastic. It's a new place. It's exciting. Something different. So I think it's going to be great. I'm pumped up. And I can see in your face that you're like, eh. Eh. Did you get tickets already? Very cold. Yes. As expensive as they were for the Atlanta game? No. No. God. Jesus Christ. That was... that. Honestly, Charlie, tickets, hotel, and everything is cheaper. Like, a pretty good bit cheaper than what I paid just for tickets to the National Championship game in Atlanta. Yeah, I don't. Remember, I don't know how much my hotel is. Well, stuff, I but paid way too much for the. I mean, I paid way too much for the Atlanta title game. Considering we lost, if we would have won, doesn't matter. But we lost, and it's like, oh, wow, that was was that worth it? I guess maybe, possibly one of those things. But all right, Charlie, we have a lot of questions. Is it okay if we move on? Do you have yeah. anything else you want to add? No. Okay. I know you got some places to be later today, but we've got, uh, as you might expect, after a big win like that over Michigan, where we clinched a spot in the national title game. We've got a ton of questions this week, so many in fact, that we're going to have to break this into two episodes. I'm determined to get to all the questions, especially bleeding into a big massive game like this, so I'm going to try to get to all of them that I can this week, but to do that and to do all of them justice, we're going to have to do this in two parts. So what we did, Charlie helped me out with this, is we sifted through the questions and divided them into two categories. We got Orange Bowl questions on one hand and the National Championship questions on the other. And today, we're going to take one last final look back at the Orange Bowl, answer those questions, and then tomorrow, I'll get back on here. Charlie, I know you have some things to do. I don't know if you'll be able to get back on here. Hopefully, we'll see. But at the very least, I'll get back on here and answer the National Championship-centric questions. And of course, Curtis and I will be back later on this week to wrap things up with our official National Championship Game preview episodes. All right, Charlie, got a lot of questions here today. Going back one last time, look at the Orange Bowl. Where are we starting? All right, our first question is from Cliff. He said that it was a big stage at the Orange Bowl for Stetson Bennett, and a case could be made um, for that being his best performance of his entire career. Confidence can't be understated when it comes to quarterbacks, and he has gained a ton of confidence after the win on New Year's Eve. What are your thoughts? Do you believe in that, Charlie? That confidence can be that big of a, of a momentum factor? Yeah. And carry over? Absolutely. I, ab- I absolutely agree with that, Cliff. I, I really do. Whatever it is that you do in whatever walk of life it is that you are engaged in, I truly am a believer that having confidence in your abilities to perform a given task can certainly enhance your performance to a certain degree. I mean, let, let's be real here. Confidence is not the magic elixir that all of a sudden allows you to perform at superhuman levels. It doesn't take Peter Parker and turn him into Spider-Man. 
And it's not going to take Stetson Bennett from former walk-on quarterback with marginal physical tools and morph him into a first-round NFL draft pick. That's not going to happen. But again, I do think having confidence in your abilities can help you raise your level of play to a degree. Like For instance, any of you who have played team sports growing up or individual sports, sports of any kind growing up, maybe you went through a rough patch and you experienced some downs throughout your time playing sports and you lost confidence and it kind of spiraled out of control and it's hard to get that back. And I'll give you a personal example for me. So growing up, I played, I played everything, man. I played football, baseball, basketball. Football is always my first love. I was probably best at baseball, but I ended up giving up baseball in high school to focus full time on football because that's just what I loved. But back in the day, I mean, I was a pretty good little baseball player. I mean, I played travel ball. I had baseball lessons multiple times a week. So I, I was doing this year round and I was, I was pretty decent at it. I played third base, I played a little bit of pitcher, I played catcher, primarily played catcher in third base. And as I got older and played more travel ball, you know, catchers are good catchers are hard to find, so that's kind of where I found myself playing more often than not. And I got to a point where I just lost confidence in my ability to make the throw down to second base. I used to do it without thinking about it, but then eventually I'm, I can't even really go back and explain why I started to lose confidence there, but I missed a couple throws, airmailed a couple of them, some runs got scored on, on my errors, and it kind of just got into my head. And for a while there, I'm talking for you know a period of several months, every time I was making a throw down a second, whether it was in a game, whether it was in practice, whether even it was like between innings when the pitcher's warming up before the team comes to bat, and what does the catcher do on, on the last pitch? You throw the ball down a second, right? Even then, like I would like be incredibly nervous. Sometimes I'd, I'd airmail it into center field. And it was just bad there. And it's because I lost my confidence. I guess some people would call that the yips. It wasn't quite to that level. I, I, I just became far more inconsistent with it because I was always thinking about it. I lost my confidence. Sometimes they were good throws. Sometimes they weren't. But once you finally start to rein that back in you, and you get your confidence back, which ultimately I did, then all of a sudden, it's, it's second nature again. You're not thinking about it and, and you're performing at a higher level. So with an anecdote like that, I think that's what you're looking at here. What Stetson's been with a guy like that who whose confidence had to be shaken after the Alabama game. He had a couple of weeks at a month or so to be able to get things back under control and to kind of reorient himself. And he comes out and responds in the way that he did with what I think was the best performance of his career. It certainly can't do anything but help him. I don't think that he's going to go out there and all of a sudden perform like a Heisman Trophy caliber level where people are questioning, hey, why did Bryce Young win the Heisman Trophy? Shouldn't Stetson have been in that conversation? That's not going to happen. Let's be realistic here. But again, it can't do anything but help him. And by extension, help us win this game. All right, our next question is from Dwayne Key. He asks, or she asks, which game you think was... A, a woman named Dwayne? I don't know if it's like... An abbreviation for something. Dwayne. Dwayne I, I mean, maybe there's a woman out there named Dwayne. Possibly. I just. That's not what I'm saying. Who knows? Oh, so he's saying it's just an alias. I don't know. Okay, fair enough. Which game was more of a representation of Stetson's true potential, Michigan or Alabama? Well, I know I'm not supposed to straddle the fence when I answer questions like this. I, I know as a podcast host or a radio host, whatever you are, you're supposed to give out like hot takes and like take these strong positions, but. In this case, I think the real answer is neither. I don't think either one of those performances, the the terrible performance against Alabama in the SEC Championship game and that great performance, the performance of his lifetime against Michigan, I don't think either one of those is really representative of who Stetson Bennett is and what his true potential is. Because I mean, if you, the facts are, if you look at it, 
that Michigan performance, as fantastic as it was, and he deserves so much credit for that. I'm so proud of the guy. I'm so excited for him. So happy that he was able to do that for himself and also for us so that we win the game. But that that's an outlier, right? Stetson Bennett has only thrown for 300 yards twice in his entire career. It's actually each of the last two starts. 340 yards against Alabama, 313 versus Michigan. His next highest output was last year against Alabama in Tuscaloosa, where he threw for 269 yards when he was 18 of 40, 45% passing there. Just, just not great. But if you look at Stetson's his, his game log throughout his career, Stetson on average is throwing for a little bit over 200 yards a game. That's who Stetson is. We were throwing the ball about 20 times a game. And he's thrown for about 200 yards. I mean, I'm just, I know this is not great podcasting. Just to give you an idea, though, let me read some of these numbers off here. So if you go back to last year against Arkansas, now he threw a lot against Arkansas for, considering the fact he did not start that game, but 20 to 29 for 211 yards. Against Auburn, 17 to 28, 240. 16 to 27, 238. Alabama, 18 to 40, 269. 9 to 13, 131 yards. And then you go to this year. And let's say first game, he started what was the UAB game, 10 to 12, 288 yards. Arkansas, 7-11 for 72. Auburn, 14 to 21, 231. Kentucky, 14 of 20, 250. Florida, 10 and 19, 161. Missouri, 13 and 19, 255. Tennessee, 17 and 29, 213. Tech, 14 of 20, 255. That's a quintessential Stetson Bennett game right there. If you look at it, like on average, it's like Georgia Tech. It's like Auburn is like Kentucky, about 14 of 20, 250-ish yards. That's Stetson Bennett. That is where this guy is comfortable operating. That's where our offense is most efficient when he's operating in that realm. So, yeah, I mean, clearly the, the Michigan performance, as great as it was, that was the anomaly. I mean, he, he had some huge plays in that game, played out of his mind, played extraordinarily well, did have the one pass where he seems to always have at least one or two every game where it's like, oh, my God, do not put the ball in harm's way. It easily could have been picked, probably should have been picked, but it wasn't. But all in all, he played fantastic. But I, I, I think that, again, that's the anomaly. That's not what you should be expecting from Stetson Bennett game in and game out, nor is that performance that you saw against Alabama. I know he has these two really high-profile misfires against Alabama, and everybody just beats him over the head with that. And I get it. I mean, the, the fact is, if we want to get where we want to go and win a national title, we're going to have to get over the Alabama hump. We're going to have to beat that football team. And this year, we're going to have to do it with Stetson Bennett as our QB1. So I understand the consternation there. But again, those are outliers. Those performances against Alabama are outliers. That's not what Stetson Bennett does week in and week out. Now, I know that frustrates people who just say, well, it's because you're not playing good teams. When you play a really good team, then all of a sudden, he goes into a shell and he's terrible and he's not good enough to be Alabama. I, I get that. I understand that. But that's the anomaly, right? There's, there's two extremes here. There's the Michigan extreme on one end of the spectrum. And then there's the Alabama extreme on the other end of the spectrum. The real sense of minute is somewhere right in the middle of those two extremes. So I know that's probably not the answer you're looking for, but... Just trying to be honest, I, I don't think either one is really like the true Stetson Minutes. Somewhere in the middle there. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. All right, coming from Craig, he wants to know, what was the biggest reason for the way Georgia was able to dominate Michigan in the Orange Bowl? Well, the biggest reason is probably just the talent gap, to be honest. The talent gap plus the fact that Michigan was built exactly how we are built, just with inferior pieces to their puzzle. I mean, according to the 247 team talent composite that they do each year, we have the second most talented roster in the country behind Alabama, and we're talking by like hundreds of a points, basically dead even between us and Alabama, while Michigan's sitting there at number 15, I believe I saw it was number 15. So they're, they're a talented team. They're a top 15 most talented team in the country, which is really good, but they're not at our level, and when they're built to try to beat us the exact same way that we're built to beat teams— it's just not going to work out well for them. As I said in the recap episode, you're not going to be able to out Georgia, Georgia, because we are just too talented. If you try to beat us at our own game, you have to get extraordinarily lucky. We just have to play extraordinarily poorly. You have to play the best game of your life to be able to do that, because we just have better players. The teams that are going to beat us to give us trouble and can neutralize our talent edge are teams like Alabama and maybe potentially Ohio State, a team like that, that has an offense that can just put up massive numbers and force us to play outside of our offensive wheelhouse and, and you know maybe potentially get ahead by a couple scores and force us to do things that we're not really comfortable doing, which is what we saw in the SEC championship game. So that's probably the biggest reason. But if we want to focus more myopically on this specific game, like from an X and O standpoint, why were we able to dominate the way that we did? It really goes back to what I told you guys was the key to the game for me coming into the Orange Bowl. And that was efficiency on first and second down. We simply could not allow ourselves to get in third and long situations because Aiden Hutchinson and David Ajabo were far too talented and far too dominant rushing the passer for us to consistently have success in those situations. We couldn't let them dominate the game. That was the key. The key was we couldn't let them dominate the game and take over the game and dictate what we were doing. And how do you do that? Well, you stay out of third and long, obvious passing situations where they can pin their ears back and just eat you alive. You have to be really efficient on first and second down and stay ahead of the change and stay on schedule. And we were extraordinarily successful in doing that far more so than Michigan was. And just to give you a number here to illustrate that, success rate is is a really great advanced statistical measure that I put a lot of stock in. It's basically an efficiency measure. And so what success rate is, if you're talking about first down success rate, it's getting 50% of the available yards on first down. So basically, if you get more than five yards on first down, it's considered a successful play. On second down, it's getting 70% or more of the available yards. And if you look at first down success rate, 
in the Orange Bowl. Based on my calculations, I went and crunched these numbers myself. So there, there's there's a margin for error here, okay? But I did crunch the numbers a couple of times. I checked my math, even though I'm not good at math. I checked my math, so there's at least that. But our success rate on first down against Michigan in the Orange Bowl was 65%. That is astronomical. You are simply just not going to lose many football games if you have a 65% success rate on first down because you are staying out of third long, you're ahead of the chains, and you are rolling. Conversely, Michigan, who again, like I told you guys, was built exactly like us. For the, the formula for them to have success offensively was the exact same as it was for us, but their success rate was only 21.7% on first down. So just two diametrically different outcomes for those two offenses with us having successful plays on first down 65% of the time, Michigan just a hair under 22% of the time. And there were many differences in the game, many reasons why we dominated them. If you're looking for something specific to this game from like an X and O standpoint, a statistical standpoint, I think that is the number one key because we effectively took Aiden Hutchinson and Ajabo out of the game because they just really weren't able to pin their ears back and, and rush the passer, which is what they do best. They're okay against the run, but they're certainly better rushing the passer than they are defending the run. And when you look at the, the final stat book there, and you see zero sacks for Michigan, and you wonder, man, how was Georgia able to do that? Were we just that much better on the offensive line? I mean, maybe a little bit, but more than anything, it was the fact that we were so successful on first down. Next up from Jessica Browning, she wants to know, what do you think was the most impressive part of Georgia's Orange Bowl performance? Yeah, thanks for the question, Jessica. So this is similar to the last question, but what was the most impressive part of our Orange Bowl performance? I think... I would just kind of go back to that last last question and build off that a little bit. We all heard for a month how great Aiden Hutchinson was. And I told you guys that on this show, I kept building this guy up like he was the greatest player we've ever seen at the college level. And I, I still believe he's insanely talented. He's just an animal out there. I mean, there's been more talented players, but the combination of talent, skill, and motor, and just want to, and desire, and just greatness that's rare when at the college level when you see a guy that just plays as hard as he does. So I, I was very concerned about that. I told you guys coming in, I was concerned about Aiden Hutchinson being able to wreck our game plan offensively and to really negate that. It was really important for us to stay ahead of the chains, be really efficient on first and second down, which we were able to do. But just the fact that we were able to completely take him out of the game and take David Ajabo out of the game and make them essentially non-factors in this game, to me, that's the most impressive part of our Orange Bowl performance. And it, it goes to a couple different things. A big part of that is absolutely play calling with Todd Munkin being able to keep them off balance, screens, RPOs, running the football. And again, just being successful on first down, Todd Munkin deserves a lot of credit for that, as does the offensive line and the tight ends as well, being able to block those guys and take them out of the game, even in the run game. They just weren't making game-changing plays, and that was a big part of why we were so, we were so successful. And when you take out a guy like Aiden Hutchinson, who I, I, I remember correctly, he finished as the runner-up in the Heisman Trophy voting, right? If you take a guy like that and you make him a non-factor in a game of this magnitude, that's impressive. So for me, Jessica, that, that's what I would go with as the most impressive part of our Orange Bowl win. All right. Uh, our listener, Michael, has the next question. He says, such a night and day difference between our defensive line play and the result for Alabama versus Michigan. Was it the player's fire, the coach's calling, opposing offensive line play, a combo of all three? What's your take? Thanks for the question, Michael. But, you know, honestly, 
I don't think our offensive line performed that poorly against Alabama. I know the final numbers, like, yeah, they had three sacks, six tackles for loss, whereas against Michigan, they had zero sacks. So on the service day, you look at the numbers, you look at the box score, and it's like, oh, yeah, well, Georgia played much better along the offensive line against Michigan than they did against Alabama. But I think a big part of that was a function of the situation that we found ourselves in once we went down multiple scores against Alabama. Once we did that, we essentially abandoned the run, which is not, definitively not, a recipe for success for our offense. And our offensive line, it's good. They're they're a good group of players. I've been very open in my opinion of them that they are probably the least talented group that we've had in the past couple of years along the offensive line. I think our most most talented players on the offensive line are underclassmen right now that weren't quite ready to take over their starting roles. But this group has been good. They've been solid. Jamari Salyer getting back healthy was a big part of that. If you want to be real, honestly, Broderick Jones um, is going to be really, really good. He's insanely talented in the long term. He's going to be awesome. He's just got to continue to get bigger and stronger and fill out his body. And Jamari, as a senior, as a veteran who's been around the block for a while, just gives us more right now, especially against a guy like Aiden Hutchinson. I felt that was a big key coming to this game is that we needed Jamari back healthy and we got him back at least relatively healthy. Because I felt Broderick, honestly, probably would have gotten eaten alive by Hutchison. He's just not physically ready for a guy like that yet. So that certainly factored into it. But just situationally in the Alabama game, when you abandon the run, you get behind like that, and you go to this drop-back pass game when you're throwing the ball seemingly almost every down or like every other down, which is outside of our wheelhouse, outside of our comfort zone that I keep talking about, that's not putting our offensive line in a situation where they're going to be very successful. Because you have a guy like Will Anderson who's able to pin his ears back and rush the passer without regard for the running game because he just knows that we're not going to run the football, it's going to be hard for anyone. I don't care who you are. I don't care, honestly, if you're an NFL left tackle. When a guy as talented as Will Anderson can just pin his ears back and rush the passer and he knows it's going to be a pass, chances are he's probably going to win the vast majority of those reps. I think that's what happened against Alabama. I actually thought we were having success running the football early in that game because what they were doing, and we're talking about this a little bit more later on this week when we get to the preview episode, they responded to our heavy personnel groups, our 12 and 13 tight end groupings, different than how Michigan responded. Michigan all year long when teams went to that, they went with their heavy personnel basically like a five-man front. Alabama did not do that with us. They basically treated Bowers as a tight end. So when we were in 12 and 13 personnel and Bowers was on the field, they were in their nickel package. And we were able to have success running the football on that personnel grouping that they had out there defensively because it was a lighter personnel grouping. I thought we did fine until we just got behind and we got taken out of that. We got taken out of our game plan. That's the fact. Offensively, we just got taken out of our game plan. We were out of our comfort zone. And that was a recipe for disaster for our, for our offense. So to answer your question, just going back to that thing, it really was a situation we got behind against Alabama. We weren't able to really help out and protect the offensive line. Whereas in Michigan, we jumped out to a quick lead. We're able to be the front runners that we really enjoy being. And that really just situationally was a lot easier on the offensive line to be able to operate in that setting, in that situation. And the next listener that sent in a question is, I can't quite see that, OB Retree Hit, Retee Hit 3. OB Retee Hit 3. It's a small font. What happened small at the end? Small font. Tura, that's like, that is just standard font size. Yeah, and I don't have my glasses. What happened at the end of the first half with clock management and leaving a timeout in Kirby's pocket? Did you see how he went after Stetson? Yes. 
Did you see that? I mean, yes. he was apoplectic. He was losing his mind. But I'm sitting here, I'm like, Kirby, I get it to a degree, but you did have a timeout. And you did run the ball two times there. So you weren't. You clearly weren't like all that motivated to well, try to, to get points. All he was clearly saying he was. He wanted his Stetson to spike the ball. Well, Kirby was just having a day because at the end of the game, he told the players not to dump the Gatorade on his head. Yeah, I mean, he was he was trying. I mean, I liked his mentality was, throughout the entire game. It was a business game. game. It was a business Yes, it's a business trip. Yes, business absolutely. Business trip, check off the list, move on to the next one. Don't stop and celebrate. What he wanted to do, he was trying to save that timeout. I know he wanted to, that's in the spike the ball, get at least one more play, then you have that timeout, so you have the entire field open to you, and you call the timeout there, maybe set up for a long field goal attempt. I know that's what he was going for. And we, did, we just flat out didn't execute that very well at all. But again, going back to just a play call in there, we ran the ball twice with under a minute left there with only one timeout. So yes, Stetson should have been... Um, had, had had more of a sense of urgency there to get up and spike the football. We didn't execute there well, but we also didn't really call it in a way that was conducive to us getting points right before the half. So I, I don't know, man. I think it was partly on the coaches, partly on Stetson and the rest of the offense for not executing there. Because we after that first down, we should have got up there and spiked the ball, and we just didn't. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. All right, Jamie wants to know how concerned you are with our offense kind of stalling there for a while at the beginning of the second half. Thanks for the question, Jamie, but honestly, I'm not really concerned about that because that's just kind of how we've operated all season long. We get these leads, and I don't want to say we go into a shell, but that's our formula. We get out to a lead, and we just wrap ourselves around our opponent like an anaconda and just squeeze them to death, especially when you get in the second half. It's almost like we're not even trying to score at times. I mean, obviously, we're always trying to score, but we're certainly... It seems like we're not making as concerted of an effort to score as we were maybe in the first half to, to where we got that lead. It's almost as though we're just trying to run clock and get out of there with a win, play good defense, and that's kind of been our formula all year long. So I've seen that story so many times, not even just this year, really Kirby's entire career as the head coach of the Georgia Bulldogs. That's kind of been our MO when we can do that. That's what he wants to do. I think that's Kirby's ideal situation. I mean, look at the drive chart. I mean, we really didn't go that many possessions without scoring. So we scored a touchdown on our second to last drive with a minute and 38 left in the first half. Then we get the ball back with, with what, a minute 28 left. And we just screwed up that. We talked about that earlier. We did not get any points there. But that was, you know, like a one minute drill kind of situation. First possession in the second half, we do go three and out there, get two yards on three plays, punt. Then the second possession, we go 11 plays eat up five and a half minutes a clock. We don't convert into points. We missed the field goal there. But I mean, that was a solid drive. Again, eating up clock. That's what, when you have a lead like that, when you're up 27-3, and even if it doesn't end up in points, you obviously want it to end up in points. But if it doesn't, you eat up five and a half minutes a clock. That's a pretty successful drive, even though it didn't end up in points. And then the following possession, we go six plays, 59 yards, three minutes, 35 seconds. It culminates with the James Cook touchdown, which is the final touchdown 
of the game for us. And after that, we legitimately were just trying to run the clock out. We were, we were not even trying to score at that point. We were just trying to get out of there with the wing, get out of there healthy. So while, yeah, ostensibly it does seem that we kind of stalled out there a little bit at times in the second half, early in the second half, I'm really not all that concerned about it. I think that was just a function of, the, of how that game played out, the fact that we got that lead, and that's just kind of how we operate once we get leads like that getting into the second half. Now, whether or not that's how we should operate, that's a whole another discussion. I honestly don't love that. I wish that we kind of kept our foot on the gas more and just absolutely devastated teams and blew them the hell out. And we do blow teams out, but blow them out even more. Like put up those really lopsided totals up there on the scoreboard. I think that would help us in a number of ways. I think it would help us in recruiting as guys are going to put up more numbers. And let's be real, guys, all these big-time five-star guys, especially receiver, we always complain about, about us not being able to recruit that well at receiver. Well, if these guys are putting up bigger numbers, that's going to all of a sudden start to open up the eyes of some of these five-star guys that we really want to land. Same thing with quarterbacks as well. So it helps you there. Plus, it also just creates a perception that your team is dominating. And in the world of college playoff where only four teams get in, you have a selection committee of human beings who are certainly influenced by those kind of things, I think it is in our best interest to just to simply try to beat teams as badly as we can. Kirby sees it differently. It's partly, I guess, you know, old school to want to embarrass and show anybody up, I guess. But also part of it is just his defensive background where you get a multiple score lead, you have a really good defense. What you want to do is you want to eat clock and get out of there with a win. That's just the way he sees it. That's the mentality he approaches the game with. To him, when you get a lead, if you keep trying to put up points and you just keep airing the ball out and doing things like that, bad things can happen, turnovers can happen, game-changing plays can happen. So why not just completely eliminate that possibility, run the clock, get out of there with a win. That's how he approaches the game. That's his mentality. I don't necessarily love that mentality. I wish that we would open things up a little bit more in the second half and continue to try to score and just do what we did to get the lead in the first place. Honestly, if we were able to do that in the first half, shouldn't we be able to do that in the second half as well? But at this point, I, I don't think Kirby's changing. I'm not even worried about it anymore. It's just who he is, and that's how we're going to continue to operate. All right, our next question. Last question today. Last question for today says, Miss Mavis, the couch monster, would like to know. Is this the, is that the said, greatest username that we've is. gotten of all says time? Says that she, it was surprised that George Pickens didn't play more against Michigan. Do you think he will play more against Alabama? Were you surprised that you did not see more of George Pickens? I mean, he's still... Getting used to it. Coming off the knee injury, also did have COVID and missed at least a couple of practices. He did not come down to Miami with the team when they initially got to Miami. He had to fly down a couple days later. So he missed some time. And when you've already missed basically the entire season, you were already rusty in the first place. You're trying to shake that rust off. It certainly does not help you in that endeavor. I will be honest, I was certainly hopeful with an extra month of time to, to heal and practice the team and, and shake that rust off that he would be able to be more of a factor in that game. And here's the thing. I think that George is to a point physically where he can be that factor that he was the previous two years. I think that he's back to that point. I mean, he's not 100% back. I'm not going to say that. But I saw enough from him in his limited snaps and his limited targets against Georgia Tech and Alabama to suggest that, yeah, this guy can absolutely go out there and make plays for us, can go up and win the top of the route like he's done for us consistently since he got here. We saw him do that against Alabama at a big, long reception where he went up and won a 50-50 ball in the first half in that game. I absolutely believe George can do those things for us. The problem right now is that we're trying to integrate him back into an offensive structure 
that has been operating without him all year. We've gotten used to doing things a certain way and featuring other guys, and George is incredibly talented, but where do you plug him in? How does he fit into this year's offense? Because we built this offense knowing that he was not going to be available for the vast majority of the season. So now that he's healthy, now that he's cleared and he's playing, and he's part of the rotation. That's really what he was. He was a guy that was rotating in there just like all of our other receivers rotate in there seemingly every other play. And I know that the prevailing thought is, well, now George is healthy. We've seen what George can do. We know what he can do. He has this proven track record. He's a game changer. He's a playmaker. So as soon as he's healthy, he's going to go out there and he's going to be the George of old. And while I think that he has the ability to do that largely right now from a physical standpoint, our offense is just built a little bit differently this year. Our offense really is built around taking what the defense gives us. That's why in different games, it's been different people. Now, Brock Bowers has been the one consistent threat, really game in and game out, but we just take what the defense gives us. Sometimes it's James Cook on the backfield. Sometimes it's James Cook and Zeus run the football. So, you know, against Auburn, it was Ladd McConkey, right? Getting one-on-one coverage out there. Bowers has had his moments. Sometimes, like against Arkansas, it's just a team rushing effort where we're just going to run the ball down your throat because that's what you're giving us. And that's what's made our offense so effective this year. I know people like to criticize our offense and act like it's not good enough, but if you look at the numbers, you look at the true efficiency numbers, our offense is like top five, top 10 in the country in most advanced statistical measures out there. And the fact that we are willing and able to take what the defense gives us, we have enough playmakers who are versatile enough to just win whenever their number is called. That is what has made our offense so effective and so efficient game in and game out all throughout this 2021 football season. So no, just because George is now healthy doesn't mean that we're just going to put him out there and force feed him the ball. And I know a lot of people want us to do that because he does have this proven track record, but that goes against everything that our offense has done all year to get us to this point. Now, if in the national championship game next week, Alabama comes out and they try to take away Brock Bowers and they defend us a certain way and George getting consistent one-on-one coverage out there, then yeah, maybe it will be that game where George has that coming out party and he reminds everyone who he is and what he's capable of. That's certainly possible. Again, I think physically he can do that. It's just a matter of, of what the opponent gives us. And if Alabama gives us George next week, then I think we'll take it. Michigan, that's really not what they were giving us. We had other opportunities to make plays and we were able to do that and just didn't really necessarily involve George being a major part of the game plan on top of the fact, at least for this specific game, that he missed some practice time with the COVID protocols and all that stuff. And with that, Charlie, that's it, right? Anything else? That's it for today. How about the brevity today, Charlie? I thought I was really strong with the brief responses. You did well. You proud of me? You did well. Thank you. Your approval means everything to me. I really mean that. I can tell by your sincerity. It's a very sincere response. You know, when you roll your eyes, Charlie, when I go on these long r- responses, it just, it's like a, it's like a knife stabbing me right in the heart. Like I'm doing something wrong. So I was just trying to, to do it right by you this time. We always give good answers. It's just sometimes you start to repeat yourself. Yeah, time. I know I do that. Uh, professionally, I kind of do that uh, with my day job. That's kind of what I have to do. So it kind of carries over here sometimes. I know that that's that's certainly a flaw, but I got to work on that. I got to work on that. New year, new me, Charlie. We're working on it. All right. 
But anyway, thank you guys for listening today. This was part one of our playoff mailbag episodes. Uh, we'll have part two, which is exclusively focused on national championship questions. We're going to have that for you tomorrow. So make sure to check that out. And then Curtis and I will be back at the end of the week to wrap things up with our official national championship game preview. So a lot of great stuff for you guys heading into the weekend. Make sure to check back. But thank you for listening, Charlie. Thank you for being here. I'm Tyler. This is Charlie. And as always, go dogs. <laughs>